Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert, along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani, who's just getting over a cold, so you might hear a little bit of that. We're delayed about a day with this show. But if you're new to the show, welcome to the party. 45 years in journalism between the two of us, over 35 covering sports in the H. And, you know, the colds aren't going to slow us down, Sean. And before we get rolling with today's show, I just want to remind everybody, two great interviews this week on the show. Astros future host Jimmy Price was on Tuesday. Ohio State insider Bryant Browning, who also was a guard at Ohio State, former offensive guard. He broke down the potential Texans quarterback, C.J. Stroud, on Wednesday. So with all the combine stuff, I hope it doesn't get lost on people. Some great information that Brian Browning had in that interview. Nah, it's fantastic, man. That's why people need to continue to check us out, Houston Sports Talk. Make sure you subscribe because I think, uh, Robert, you do the best job out of anybody on this platform of getting the most relevant and great guests to talk about the uh, current topics that concerns our city, man. And um, uh, it was fantastic interviews this week and really enjoyed uh, Jimmy Price. Uh, talking with him, always good to talk some baseball. But C.J. Stroud, that possibility is very, very real. So I think Houston Texan fans, football fans might want to familiarize themselves with uh, the opinions. And there's some strong ones uh, from him. So make sure you check it out. I wish I had in my hand the height and weight of Bryce Young. I keep checking the web before we did this show. I do not have it. I am sorry about that, Sean. Uh, it's going to break Twitter when it happens. <laughs> Uh, maybe important Texans news for the NFL draft. But before we hit it, a quick reminder, we're super close to 1,000 subscribers, which is huge for the show. So subscribe and put us over the top. And for anybody watching, you can also listen on the run by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. But Sean, Georgia defensive lineman's Jalen Carter's arrest for this street racing incident, I was thinking could affect the Texans because he's potentially the best player in the draft that's not a QB, him or Will Anderson, of course. And I asked Twitter if this helps the Texans because maybe the Bears are less likely to drop down to the four spot in a Colts trade if potentially one of their major players, Jalen Carter specifically, is out of the mix. It was kind of a split vote on Twitter. What do you think about that? I think it affects everybody within the top five and maybe even beyond it, it really affects everything because you're talking about a significant player and nobody ever really knows um the significance of you know how this is going to affect a player's particular draft slotting how it's going to affect teams affect teams decision making i mean i think back to laramie tunsil you know whenever he had that whole incident you know with the gas mask and you know smoking weed out of it the whole thing it was a horrible look and how did that change, you know, his trajectory? How did that change his slotting? You know, was it one, two spots? I mean, I, I, I don't know. You never really know until it happens. And then you're just going off of, well, what you piece together from teams leading up to the draft or what these mock drafts, 7.0s and all that crap says. Um, it, it should affect it because what do we talk about so much every single year going into the combine? We know what this guy's capable of on a football field. We know he played amongst the very best you possibly could in college football. It's about the type of person that he is away from the game. It's about the type of person he is studying the game, preparing for the game, all of those things. And this is a giant red flag. It should be, it has to be, it needs to be paid attention to. I, I just think it should affect it. But 
if you ask Nick Casario this or really any general manager or head coach, hey, you know, how does this affect what you're going to do? You know what? We're only worried about the Houston Texans. That's all they're going to say. And guess what? Nick Casario said, really, I, I thought I was encouraged by this earlier this week. He was like, you know what? We have three or four players. Most teams do. They've got three or four players slotted, you know, and wherever they're going to pick in the first round that they're comfortable with taking. And I'm sure the Texans feel just the same way as Nick broke it down. They probably have two or three other players that they're very comfortable taking at number two, or if they trade up to number one or trade back to seven, whatever the case may be. You mentioned Tunsil. He was picked at number 13, top left tackle in that draft, I believe. Usually if you're the top left tackle in the draft, you're not going all the way down to number 13. And to my point on how this affects the Texans trades between the Colts and the Texans and the Bears, because this is where we get soup to nuts on what's going to happen in the draft. And just for instance, if you're the Bears, now you're dropping, if you trade with the Colts, from first to fourth. So the Texans draft the quarterback and the Colts draft the quarterback at one, two. Then Will Anderson goes three. He's considered the best one along with Jalen Carter. So are you going to pick Jalen Carter at number four? Are you comfortable with picking Jalen Carter? Whereas if the Texans give you slightly less compensation for moving down one spot, but you guarantee that you get Will Anderson, the best non-quarterback on the board. Isn't that a big benefit for you if you're the Chicago Bears? It leaves you with less options, less, a little what you can do at pick four, and maybe you don't get exactly what you want, and, and now you're kind of fishing like, wh wh where do we go with that spot at pick four as opposed to if the Texans offer the same thing, or you could just stay put also. That's the other option. The best deal for the Chicago Bears, if they're thinking about trading with anybody, is to do it at number two, because that guarantees you still the guy that you want to draft. Unless the Texans just come straight out of left field and they go, well, Anderson, number one. <laughs> and I don't think for one millisecond that they would take Jalen Carter at number one now or even before. So that's that. We we do this to ourselves every single NFL draft, whether our team is drafting number one, number two, 13, 22, it doesn't matter. We think we know what they're going to do. And then we talk ourselves into every single possible scenario that could possibly happen. At the end of the day, one thing remains clear. They have no quarterbacks on the roster that they choose to name by their actual name. That means they need a quarterback. They want a quarterback, and if they can move up one spot and the best deal that they can offer Chicago is guaranteeing them that they will get the exact player that they want, that they need, and so do the Houston Texans. If it's Bryce Young, fantastic. If it's C.J. Stroud, fantastic. You don't have to make a deal at all. But you do if you want to guarantee yourself that quarterback and you want to guarantee the most rock-solid trade for the Chicago Bears that they get their guy. It's the only deal that makes sense from the outside looking in. Obviously, if you're in it, if you're along this journey with the NFL teams and they've got inside information, they've got an inside pulse, then they'll do what they do accordingly. But that's the way that I see it in terms of what's the smartest, what's the most logical, and what is the most rock-solid plan for the Houston Texans and the Chicago Bears, for that matter, if they both want to get the guy that they want and need. Yeah, I just thought that entire situation was way bigger than anything that we're going to find out in the Combine specifically yeah. in the next few days or in the last few days that we've watched the Combine go on. So I wanted to hit on that. And then I also wanted to talk about Deontay Foreman because six years ago, he was drafted by the Texans in the third round. It was somebody that was 
one of the many draft choices that they just had to release or didn't resign under the Bill O'Brien administration and then into Casario. But is there any interest in bringing him back, Sean? He's a free agent. And I don't know, did you see his numbers in Carolina last year? I can, I can run those down for you. Go ahead and run the numbers down. I think it's important since you have them in front of you. I mean, I've looked at them, but I don't know them by heart. Before you run the numbers down, it's important to note that, look, Deontay Foreman, he was just the next guy that you were looking to make history, really, for an NFL running back having sustained an Achilles rupture, coming back from that and making any sort of mark in the NFL for a year, two years, three years, and beyond. So far, it appears as though he's done that from a health standpoint, like it may not be an issue, but listen to the numbers. Go ahead and run those numbers down, and then we can talk about it. Yeah, 203 carries, 914 yards. This is last year at Carolina, four and a half yards per carry, which is more yards per carry than our own Damian Pierce, who was at 4.3 by the end of the season. There you go. What sample size would make you feel comfortable about a guy that is still trying to make NFL history, really? And and I say that because go look. It's a very long list of guys that have, you know, suffered an Achilles injury that just have not been able to come back and put together any sort of longevity is even, you know, overstating it. But um, playing for, you know, two, three years at a high caliber NFL caliber level at a running back position. It just doesn't happen. I mean, everybody wants to probably point at like Terrell Suggs. Okay, well, he wasn't a running back. Okay, there's different expectations there. There's different pressures put on the body and that sort of thing. And not to take anything away from Suggs, what he did was absolutely fantastic. But it's a running back and it's about the use and it's about what you need him for and how he plays the game and his style and the whole bit. So much torque that you're putting on your lower half of the body that comes into play. If I'm the Texans, am I interested? I think it comes down to price, risk, price, risk versus reward, right? Right. You know, how many other running backs are there out there that also bring a little bit of veteran leadership to them? And how much are they even still valuing that? You know, because Damian Pierce, very mature already coming in as a rookie, you know, learning under Rex Burkhead. I know people grew very tired of him just after even the first handful of carries this regular season, but we can't understate the value that Rex Burkhead did have in the film room, in the locker room for a guy like Damian Pierce, obviously the running back coach, Danny Barrett, who is coming back as well. If you can go out and get a cheaper veteran that can be much more effective than a Rex Burkhead and compliment Damian Pierce, by all means do it. I don't think the Texans should necessarily be in the market and comfortable with drafting a running back at any point, even if it's Bijan in the first round or second round, wherever the heck he may fall. You still need a veteran running back, I think, a good third down back on this roster to help these young guys along. They got a bunch of picks late in the draft. I don't know if Casario is going to trade up. He's been known to trade up, especially with these late round picks. But still, you can find a running back to take a flyer on late in the draft. But somebody like a Deontay Foreman at the right price, it could be a good value for you. And definitely insurance for Damian Pierce, who runs hard and I think will have his share of injuries because of his style of running. I I agree with you. Um, You know, I've called Damian a franchise back, and I've gotten a little pushback from that just because of what you'd said, the style of running back that he is. I get it, but what's a franchise running back? What exactly does that mean? I mean, is he young? Is he good? Is he effective? 
Is he impactful? He checks all of those boxes. Like, we've long since blown past this idea that a running back in the NFL is sustainable for longer than, you know, four or five years. Sure. You know, as far as I'm concerned, like, Damian Pierce is that dude. And if he can give you a good quality four or five years at that position, you've won. And you've especially won given the fact that you found that dude in the fourth round. Let's move to the Astros, and I guess we can sit here and parse early spring training numbers, but that's usually pretty meaningless in my book. And I wanted to ask you a much broader question because I just started thinking about this. Give me your top five most important Astros this year. Not necessarily the best five Astros, because that might be a whole other list, but the most important. And see if you can give give them to me in order, Sean. My number one is Jordan. Um, he's just the most impactful offensive player for the Houston Astros, just because obviously of his age, the deal that you got him under, but what he provides for you at the plate. He's hit some of the biggest home runs in franchise history. Look, this this hand injury aside, look what he did last year with it. It's still a concern for me, but him being healthy and playing more times than not, if that's 145, 150 games, I think that would be fantastic. I think that's probably, at least should be the expectation, given the fact that he'll be platooning left field DH with Michael Brantley, and we don't know how health-wise that's going to go. But Jordan is my clear-cut number one. Yeah, I'm just going to run mine real down. I'm going to run them all quickly because I just have like a quick thing on each one. I can do that too, yeah. It's it's fairly obvious for me, number one. For me, is obvious anyway. It's Fromber. He's the ace, a huge inning innings eater now that Verlander's gone it's going to be massive for the bullpen for this whole I mean what happens to him is a ripple effect through this entire pitching staff enough said number two Christian Javier so not yet Jordan but Javier's my number two and without Verlander maybe without McCullers for a while they need their second best pitcher to stay healthy and eat innings and he hasn't been able to do that in the past so he's my number two number three Jordan it's very simple his presence in the lineup is massive he can carry the offense for a week when he's rolling. Nobody else on this team, I don't I don't think anybody else can really do that. Number four, Altuve. We always forget his value in igniting the offense by getting on base until he goes into a slump, and then you see this offense go straight down into the toilet at times. Number five, I'm going to go with Dusty on this one. He convinced me last year. It's Martin Maldonado. The machete is value to the pitching staff. May never be quantified, Sean. That's a fantastic list, and it's really one hard to argue with. It might just be a question of semantics. You know, if I had a chance to redo mine, I probably would and include Maldonado. Maybe it's because I do take him for granted, (laughs) right? But I I, I did concentrate my list more offensively. So after Jordan, I went number two with Alex Bregman. And I'm looking at it from this standpoint because it's a big year for him. There's talk of extension. His, along with Jose Altuve's contract, is up beyond at the conclusion of the 2025 season. If you'd want to re-up this guy, now's the time to do it a couple of years early. I think he comes in with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder in that look. It's like, hey, I got the World Series titles. You know, I've been in the MVP conversation. But you know what? Now it's time, you know, for me. And I want that deal. And I want that deal here in Houston. So I think he's coming into the season with a little something to prove. And hopefully he can stay healthy. Number three is Kyle Tucker. Much the same reasoning because it is his time. You know, he lost out his arbitration case by 2 2 and a half million dollars. He's a 3,100 guy the last couple of years, respectively. And he's just become a better hitter every single year within this roster. And I think it's a huge year for him, but it's not to be understated the value uh, that he brings offensively and 
defensively for this ball club. Jose Altuve is my number four. You said it's easy for people to forget. I think it's easy, just like maybe I did, taking Martin Maldonado for granted. I think a lot of people take Altuve for granted, and it became a glaring issue this postseason when he went through that 0 for 25, 0 for 27 slump, whatever it is, and had a horrible postseason. But it's about what he's done in the regular season to get you to that position. And it's also about the value that he offers defensively, which is severely understated. But he showed you exactly why the Astros continue to trot him out there and give him opportunities in the lineup because he can bring massive value defensively. We saw that alone in the World Series with some of the plays that he made. Number five for me was Framber Valdez because he is the ace. You did lose Justin Verlander. That was I won't even call it a Band-Aid approach. It was quick. It was painless. It wasn't a thing because you felt comfortable with Framber Valdez taking the lead, you know, on this Astros staff. You felt comfortable with Christian Javier. You felt comfortable with Arquiti or Garcia or McCullers. And they all have their question marks until they prove it all again. But Framber's the guy that's got to set the tone, and I think he does this season. If I can do one thing, I give him an honorable mention, and that's Jeremy Pena because he's done what he's done for one year. He's made us feel really good in the absence of Carlos Correa since he left the Houston market. He's the World Series MVP. Let's not for one second take this guy for granted or in the same breath say it's a shoe in and he's just going to continue to get better. This is a big year for him because there's a lot of pressure coming off of a guy who stepped into a key position on the field in the lineup and did what he did, batting at the number two spot behind Jose Altuve. He's got to show consistency and show the ability to get better. Dana Brown said it perfectly yesterday in talking at spring training. You know, I still have to scout these guys because guys, their bodies change when they're so young. They get better. Some of them get worse. It's about creating consistency, and Jeremy Pena's got to do that. Yeah, all I'll say with Bregman is you had him at number two. He slumped for about two years, and we still did pretty well with Bregman slumping for two years. So that's why Bregman's not even close to the list. Like, in the postseason, you absolutely need peak Redmond to, to win the whole thing. But I'm talking about in terms of the whole big picture from the start to this year to all the way till it's done. And again, you know, I put the pitching up at the top because, you know, if there's one thing that I've learned in baseball, you can never have enough of it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not going to argue with you that my order is perfect. I put Bregman so high up on this list because – of, of a reasoning that you just mentioned. Look, Jose Altuve went through that 0 for 25, whatever it was, slump in the postseason. And that just showed you how important the depth is on this roster. Bregman playing extremely healthy this past season and route to another World Series championship for this Astros ball club was a huge reason why. And so personally and from a team-wide standpoint, that's why I put his value up there so significantly. You know, when you've got production from third base, from shortstop, from second base, and now first base with the acquisition of Jose Abreu and the offensive capabilities that you have in the outfield at the corner slots, one of the most consistent hitters in the game, regardless of who's out there, if it's Brantley or Jordan Alvarez and left and right with Kyle Tucker, those guys allow you to kind of you know, go through the ebb and flow of a major league baseball season because somebody else is always going to kind of be there and pick you up. So that's why I have Bregman there because I think he can and is transitioning into that consistent, healthy, productive ball player that he thinks and has always wanted to be with the exception of the last couple of seasons that preceded 2022. Hey, I need everybody out there that's watching and listening to put your top five Astros. Let's put, yeah. put them in the comments. We want to hear from you. What do you got? Any other thing about spring training that 
has caught your eye? Anything that we haven't mentioned in the last uh, week or so with Jimmy and you and I? Uh, you know, we covered a lot with Jimmy. So, again, if people haven't checked that interview out with Jimmy Price, uh, Astros Feature, make sure you do check that out. We covered pretty much top to bottom, north, south, east, and west with him. Uh, we need to see a little bit more, another week or two of spring training. And then I want to start diving into uh, a little bit deeper, you know, what's really popping for us in terms of the center field position, in terms of backup catcher with Corey Lee, Yonder Diaz going at it behind Martin Maldonado. Those are really two of the most important spots for me. You know, I put a lot of emphasis on the utility role as well. I, I was one of those guys that wanted to see Yuli Gurriel back filling that void, albeit a 39-year-old, uh, just because of the value of his leadership and his bat. Um, that I think, uh, you know, will return despite a uh, massive slump during the regular season last year. But I think those three center field catcher and utility role here in the next couple of weeks, uh, we need to start seeing some development in spring for those guys. All right. The Cougs, the current Cougs are 28 and two. They're number one in the country. We've said a ton about them in the last few weeks, just kind of focusing in on the tournament now. But with everything going on with them, it might get lost in the mix that it was 40 years ago this month when the Houston Cougars started their unforgettable run to the 83 finals, Sean, their first final in school history. And I figured it'd be cool to listen back to a short clip of my conversation a few years ago with a member of Phi Slamma Jamma, Reed Geddes. Let's hear what Reed had to say. What was it like during those layup lines before the game started in the visitors' gyms? If you could put us there, describe the reaction you'd get from the crowd. You know, it's funny because we, we were maybe Golden State, but not from the standpoint that, you know, we were as great as Golden State. Um, but Golden State's one of those teams that everybody wants their home team to beat, but you don't really hate them, right? I mean, you go and you want to see Steph Curry shoot the ball, and, you you know, you want to see – now you're going to want to see Kevin Durant hype. And so you go – not only hoping your team upsets them, but also to see the show. And and that's what it was like back in those days. You know, there there would be huge crowds. And other than Fayetteville and, and College Station, you didn't really feel a lot of hatred. There were a lot of oohs and ahs and cheering, you, you know, when spectacular plays were made. And so it was a unique team. You got to remember the Louisville game, right? What What was it like to be involved in that one? The thing that jumps out at me the most was, you had two teams that played the exact same style with the same strengths, the same weaknesses. There was nothing gimmicky. It was absolutely just mono mono Just we're going to come out and we're going to trap and press and run it down your throat. We're going to jam the accelerator down to the floorboard. And we're going to keep it there for 40 minutes. And they came out with the approach. We're going to press and trap and run and jam the accelerator down to the floorboard and, and run it down your throat. You, you know, it's interesting, Robert. I'm not very good at, at hyperbole um, just because I, I, I guess because I've called college basketball for ESPN for the last 30 years, but I'm not very good at saying, oh, we changed the game or we were the greatest team that never won. Or, But there's a lot to be said for that game, simplifying the game of basketball and, and having an impact on the way it was played going forward. It's interesting how many coaches, you know, what, what was once deemed as undisciplined run and gun, it's amazing how many of the concepts and the presses and the traps and the free-flowing offense and emphasizing transition, it's amazing from that game forward how many programs and teams and coaches adopted that philosophy. 
Oh, oh, brother, that was good stuff from Reed Geddes. And notice, Sean, I used a clip from my Louisville question, the semifinal, and not that other Final Four game. I try to forget that one. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, you know, Reed Geddes, uh, and listening to him kind of break that down, reminded me of last night. You know, I went to uh, the Cougars home finale and after the game, one of the uh, reporters in the media corps asked Jamal Shedd, hey, uh, you know, Elvin Hayes said the other day that, uh, you know, his team, you know, would have smoked you guys. But that's not to take anything away from, you know, what this team is capable of. And Jamal was like, well, hey. And he thought he was referencing the 1968, you know, championship team that, you know, played in the Astrodome against UCLA and lost. But he was like, hey, you know, Elvin was there. He was on that team. You know, I can't take anything away from him. But, you know, I don't know anything about that. We're pretty darn good, too. I asked Marcus Sasser a similar question. And I said, hey, you know, you've got some unfinished business personally. But then from a team-wide standpoint as well, one, you had your season cut short last year with the leg injury, didn't play in a tournament at all. You know, what does that mean to you to have this opportunity? And he's like, it is unfinished business. I don't like to talk about it a lot, but it is absolutely unfinished business. And not just that, but we want to win this one for, for Kelvin Sampson. So there, there's those couple of elements, very, um, you know, at the forefront of these players' minds this year. And, you know, I wrote a story. It's on sportsradio610.com if you want to check that out today. Uh, just kind of looking back at, Kelvin Sampson and how he viewed this program when he took it over nine years ago. He didn't even want to call it program. With all respect to Coach Dickey, you know, who preceded him for, you know, four or five years as the Cougar head basketball coach between Sampson and Penders, he said, man, this wasn't even a program. But we got things going and he fought and he worked every single day with the athletic administration to get the things in place necessary that if you were going to fire coaches, if you were going to have these high expectations, then you better give us the resources and the amenities to play and act like a top team in this country. And they did, you know, and thanks to, you know, Chris Pesman and Rena Couture and everybody involved, but Samson really for fighting every single day, tooth and nail to get those things put in place because he was confident in himself. He knew he just needed something to sink his teeth into. He knew that he could recruit. He knew that wasn't going to be a problem getting the talent in here, but it was what we could do with it once they're in. What resources do we have to make them the very best? I think, man, this team right now, this year, Robert, is special. And at the end of it, they're going to be in the conversation with a 68 team, you know, with some five slam jamma teams, which completely different eras, completely different levels of talent. But from a team standpoint, this team can get accomplished what they think is very doable this year, and that's winning the whole darn thing. You have to put them in the conversation. What they can't do this year is capture the nation, and that team captured the country. Let me just tell you, I know you're but, too young to remember this, Sean. I was there 11, 12 years old. If you watch that 30 for 30, it's incredible, and I asked him about Elijah Wan, Drexler, Guy V, and the 30 for 30 in the full interview that I did with uh, Reed Geddes and it's up on the YouTube channel. I'm going to throw the full 30 minute conversation. I'm going to put the link to it yeah, at the it. end of this video. So you're going to see it up there on your screen when we close this thing out. Sean, the first tournament game, the Cougars won and that 83 run was against the Maryland Terrapins. Now my memory is good, but it's not that good. So I didn't remember this, but let me ask you this. Do you know or remember who might have been on that Maryland team? And I'm going to give you a hint. 
He was only a freshman that season, and he's one of the more famous Maryland Terrapin basketball players ever. Uh, you know, it's one of those things like you're going to say the name and I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, of course. And, uh, full disclosure, my my ability to rattle off players in NCAA basketball history is far lesser than what I can do at the NBA level. So go ahead and give it to me. It's a name that sort of lives in infamy at this point, but it's Len Bias. Len Bias was on that team. There you go. There you go. Yeah. They also played Memphis State in that run, uh, who, you know, the Cougs are going to close out with here. In the next couple of days, uh, the formerly Memphis State is now they're the University of Memphis. They actually changed names. I was, frankly, in Memphis when they were still the Memphis State Tigers. And over the last couple of decades, they made the transition over to the University of Memphis. So it, very interesting that the connection with those two teams continues to this day. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, it, it makes it makes what the Cougars are doing, you know, that much more rich in, in history, to be honest with you. You know, so the words that you just said in, in 1983, five slam and jam captured the nation. And then going back to what Reed Geddes said, you know, as, as a broadcaster and, and being able to look at things like objectively, he said he kind of struggles with saying we kind of changed the game, you know, the way that it's viewed, the way that it's played. I get that perspective, but they did. It's true. They did capture the nation. And I started my article off last night with not not similar at all words because they're two very different things. And then say the Cougars have captured the nation. So they've got the nation's attention and they've had their attention all regular season long to the tune that they've owned. They've rented, as Kelvin Sampson likes to say, that number one spot. And to be quite honest with you, the way that they're playing basketball right now, you could look at it in a couple of different lenses, but I see a team that learns valuable lessons every single game. And that's that's a testament to Kelvin Sampson and his approach with his guys and what they're able to take from 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 each and every game and then build on it. This team is coming together, just like we'd seen them do over the course of the last two, three, four years around this time. They're playing their best basketball. They're ready for tournament action. They have a chip on their shoulder. And just as Sasser said last night after the game, they don't know how much longer Samson's going to be coaching. And this is it for Sasser. And he wants to get the job done this year. A couple of things from the clip that I showed you. The most important thing was you might have seen Akeem Olajuwon jumping ball at the Louisville game. And the guy that he was jumping the opening tip with was Rodney McRae, who a few months later would be drafted by the Houston Rockets. And then about two years later, the two guys would be playing together for the Houston Rockets and would then go on to an NBA Finals. Now, Rodney McRae was drafted instead of Clyde Drexler. The Rockets fans wanted Clyde Drexler they didn't want Rodney McRae. It turns out the Rockets fans were correct in that. However, go listen to that Reed Geddes interview because he talks about where Clyde was as a basketball player coming out of that draft. And you might not know where he was as a basketball player if you just watched the Clyde Drexler that we saw with that 95 championship run with the Rockets. So that's worth a look. But Rodney McRae, he was one of my guys. And there's a 50-minute interview on YouTube that we did on the show a few years ago with Rodney McRae, great interview. He played with not only Elijah Wan, but he played with Michael Jordan in his later years in the NBA. And if you go back to Louisville, obviously, Denny Crum, the coach of that Louisville team, one of the legends, I asked him about that. 
just so much stuff. He was the guy that made the pass to Ralph Sampson that Sampson made the miracle shot in 86 that put the Rockets into the NBA finals with the Celtics. And so uh, there's so much of a connection in that game between the entire Houston Rockets history between Drexler and Elijah Wan and Rodney McRae and all of that. And, yeah. you know, just it's, it's such a, an incredibly sliding doors type of moment that the Rockets did not draft Clyde Drexler at that time. And who knows how things would have changed and the, and where it would have gone just like, you know, the Rockets drafting Ralph Sampson instead of Michael Jordan. Although at the time this was like not drafting Wemba Yana at number one, they, they made the choice that everybody had to make then. Yeah, that's incredible. Right. Yeah. You know, who knows uh, what would have been, but at least we got a, a little taste of that because Clyde Drexler ended up coming back and him and Elijah Wan won the championship, you know, the second one in 94, 95 season together. So that, that that's what made that special. I remember being a kid, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, however old I was at the time, um, you know, that being a part of the storyline, it's like, hey, you got to relive that history then. And, you know, we've had an opportunity to do that, uh, you know, uh, every once in a while for the last 20, 25 years uh, since that was the case. And we're get ready, man, because when tournament season starts here in just a few short weeks, it's going to be like a 30 for 30 or an E60, you know, with the Cougars as they continue uh, their trek, their journey, and to get deeper and deeper, closer to another Elite Eight and Final Four in a championship game appearance this year, hopefully. Um, we're going to hear a lot more of that history, and I'm here for it. I'm ready. Hope it's a long run, man. I, I I know the Cougar fans can't wait for this one. And this feels like if anything is set up for, for it to be the year with Jarris Walker and Sasser, the veteran, and Jamal Shedd now a veteran of all this, and Tremont Mark and et cetera, et cetera, all these different guys. This feels like it's it. You know, you're just hoping that at least get to the final four. I, obviously, we want more than that. But just getting to the final four right here in Houston, Texas, the Houston Cougars playing for a championship would be a hell of a way to close off an incredible just last several years for the Houston Cougar program. That would just be the ultimate, right? Um, because the final four is here. We're hosting the championship game. You don't know how much longer Samson's going to head this program up. You've got one of the greatest guards in Cougar basketball history in his senior season uh, and Marcus Sasser, you know, playing it out and, this is arguably the healthiest, you know, most seasoned, ready team to get this done. And not, I haven't even mentioned what the rest of the, the leagues are doing, but, you know, all season long, and I, if you paid attention to it, I, I think you understand it, is that there's not really a great team out there. Kelvin Sampson has said that numerous times over the course of the last month plus, that there's a lot of really good teams, but there's no great team. And the Cougars aren't great yet, but they're working on it. And he thinks it's in them. And I, I, I think we're starting to see that they're on the precipice of, you know, not just the city knows who they've got, but they're on the precipice of showing the entire country what they're capable of. And like you said, hopefully it is that long run and it ends here in the city of Houston. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to our next show. Uh, get better, Sean. Hope you're, Feel a little bit healthier by the next time we do our show on Monday. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you. Hey, anytime we talk ball, man, it gives me a little juice. So uh, I'm looking forward to the next time. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.